The scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and uh, good morning and welcome again to New Life Fremont. Uh, My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. Today is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Uh, Our waiting and longing and desiring and hoping will soon be over. Jesus will be here. Joy to the world, go tell it on the mountain. And because Advent is almost over and Christmas is almost here, I thought it would be appropriate to reflect and meditate on the Incarnation, Christ's entrance into the creation, the Word becoming flesh. And we'll be using six verses from John chapter 1 as a guide. And uh, that's John 1, verses 1 through 5 and 14, if you're following along. And as we dive deeper into John 1, we will have three points. Zero Hamilton references, but three points, and they are word, light, and flesh. Word, light, and flesh. And so let's begin with our first point, word. On Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, just over a month ago now, our nation and really the entire world faced a tragedy the likes of which we had never seen before and likely will never see again. The Ticketmaster website crashed during the pre-sale of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour. According to an article in The Guardian, during the pre-sale process, which was only supposed to be open to around 1.5 million verified Swift fans, 14 million people tried to get tickets. Things got even more heated two days later, the day before sales were meant to open to the general public, when Ticketmaster announced it was scrapping further sales due to extraordinary high demands on ticketing systems and insufficient remaining ticket inventory to meet that demand. According to Ticketmaster, demand for Swift could have filled 900 stadiums. 900 stadiums, 14 million people all trying to get tickets to a Taylor Swift concert the instant They went on sale. Why? Because they all want to experience transcendence, some sense of existence beyond the physical world. They want to be touched by something that's transcendent, someone not subject to the limitations of the material universe. They want Taylor Swift, who is larger than life, high and above us all, otherworldly, to change them somehow. And you want the same thing too. We all want that, to feel like there's more, to be a part of something greater, to be touched by something transcendent. Might not be a Taylor Swift concert for you like it is for me. Maybe it's a national park. Maybe it's skydiving. Maybe it's something else entirely. 
but we all want it. But then the day after the concert comes or whatever it is, and we all realize it was only a glimpse, a shadow, a whisper. It may have transcended our daily mundane lives, but it wasn't ultimately transcendent because it left us mostly the same. If anything, slightly diminished because now we're dissatisfied, craving more of what it cannot give. Our passage is a description of something called the word. Now, that word, word, transcends our concept of the word, word. Uh, The Greek word is logos, uh, which goes far beyond just a mere word on a page or a mere spoken word. Logos has to do with concepts like logic or reason uh, or universal principles, universal values or meaning or significance, things that transcend. The word logos is a loaded word. And as we know from verse 14, the word became flesh. The word that John is talking about is actually a person. Uh, It's not a what, it's a who. The logos is Jesus. When John describes the word, he is describing Jesus. And we very quickly learn a lot about Jesus in this passage. First, we learn that Jesus is eternal. Verse 1 begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. You know, verse 2 begins very similarly. Similarly, he was in the beginning. And this is very intentionally using the same phrase from Genesis 1.1, which says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what John is saying is that Jesus was in the beginning. And do you feel a little bit of the awkwardness of that phrasing? In the beginning was the word. Jesus was in the beginning. You kind of expect another word, right? Was what? Jesus was what in the beginning? But it's just was. He was in the beginning. And the sense is this, in the beginning, at the start of all things, Jesus already was. He existed before beginning, which is to say Jesus has always existed. He is eternal. I mean, let that sink in. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Like, he is older than his mom. None of us are older than our parents, but he's the only person like that. The day that Jesus was born, he was older than the woman that just gave birth to him. Because Jesus is eternal. John continues in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The word was with God. Jesus was with God. Now, that preposition that's translated with could be toward God or before God, not referring to time, but to location, as in before God, in God's presence, or very close to God, in close fellowship with God. But however you translate it, you can't avoid the reality that there is some relationship between the word, between Jesus and God. They can be talked about as two things or two persons that relate to one another. Jesus can be with God. 
There's some sort of distinguishability. Jesus is in relationship with God, but that's not all. John also says, concluding verse 1, and the word was God. In the beginning, Jesus was, and he was both with God and was God. I mean, what a philosophical tongue twister, right? We're not even one verse into our passage, and we're already asking, what in the world does this mean? How can Jesus be before beginning? How can he be God and yet also be with God? Thankfully, in the early centuries of church history, problems like this were worked out. If you remember, we talked about church councils during our Acts sermon series. Future church councils would engage texts like John chapter 1 and give the church agreed-upon ways to understand these things. And so we don't have to rework them today. But these early councils took these apparent contradictions, and it's important that you understand that these are only apparent contradictions. They don't truly contradict. Jesus is God and Jesus is not God. That would be a contradiction. Or in the beginning, Jesus was, and in the beginning, Jesus was not. That would be a logical contradiction. But Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God only seemed to contradict. Before the beginning, Jesus already was, only seems to contradict. These things only seem to contradict if we impose our own presuppositions on what is possible for God. But in reality, they're more like a paradox, or another philosophical word for this is an antinomy. They seem to contradict at first glance, but don't necessarily contradict. And the the key to this is only saying what is true, not how it is true. The moment you start trying to explain exactly how this all works, you're going to get in trouble. So many of the doctrines that have been labeled heresy in church history are basically attempts to explain things that God has left a mystery to us. So these early church councils took these apparent contradictions and gave us doctrines like the Trinity, God in three persons, one nature. That's how Jesus can be with God and God himself. Don't try to explain how it works. Don't say it's like an egg or like water. Those may seem like near metaphors for the Trinity, and they are near metaphors for the Trinity, but they're actually perfect metaphors for heresies because we can't quite explain the how of the Trinity. We only know how to explain what the Trinity is. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so, of course, as our passage focuses on, Jesus is God, one of the three persons who are God. The word is divine. Jesus is divine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then one more thing in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator. How did God create in the beginning? Through his word. He spoke. Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created by his word. And Jesus is the word. Jesus is the creator, which again is crazy to think about. Mary did not create Jesus. Jesus created Mary. 
because Jesus created all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so Christmas isn't a celebration of Jesus' creation. It's a celebration of his incarnation, the taking on of flesh, which we'll talk about later, because Jesus has always existed. He's God. He's divine. He's eternal. He's the creator. And so what should you take away from all of this? What's the point? What's the application? Well, Jesus' transcendence can feel somewhat difficult to apply. It's a bit abstract. It's a bit distant, which makes sense because that's the nature of transcendence. It's above and beyond and higher. And so to some degree, that's the application. Know that Jesus is God and you are not. He is transcendent, and you are not. Jesus is the universal purpose and reason and meaning of everything, not you. And so you ought to orient your life around Jesus. Submit to him, follow him, obey him. If something isn't going right in your life or in this world, it's because it's not oriented around Jesus. He is the divine, transcendent one over all things toward which all things ought to be oriented. But also, just be in awe of Jesus. That's the application. Stand amazed before Jesus. He is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He's divine God of very God. He's the creator of all things. He's older than his own mother. He created his mom. I mean, how do you even explain that? You can't. All you can do is say, wow, how is that possible? Only with God. That's the application. Stand amazed in Jesus' presence and just say, wow. Now, building on this topic of transcendence, there are many philosophers who have rightly argued that if there is a God— if there is a creator, then he must be transcendent. And Christians would affirm that. But then, what many have continued to say, which we can't affirm, is that if there is a transcendent being, if there is a God, then we as non-transcendent beings, as lower beings, as finite people, we could never know him. We could never know about him, even. He would be inaccessible. We could never get to him. And while there is a certain logic to that, it's overly focused on us and our finitude. And so sure, we on our own could never discover God using just our own power or devices, but couldn't the transcendent one make himself known? Couldn't the transcendent one lower himself in a sense? Couldn't he reveal himself to lower beings? Of course he could. That's exactly what Christianity, Christianity believes God has done. God, the transcendent one, has revealed himself to us who are non-transcendent. He's revealed himself. And that takes us to our second point, light. Have you ever been staying in a hotel? You get ready for bed. You close the blinds and curtains. You turn off all the lights. You hop into bed. The room is pitch black, and you're about to slip softly into a dreamy sleep, and then you notice it. The microwave 
clock light. It's making the whole room glow. And so you get up, find something to put in front of the microwave light. I found that the little envelopes that they give you your room key in works well. You can just kind of fold it into a 90-degree angle, hang it over the top of the microwave, cover the clock. And so you do that. You hop back into bed. The room is pitch black, and you slip softly into a dreamy sleep. But then you notice there's a light on the TV. And even though it's powered off, for some reason, there's this orange light that just lets you know it's there, and it's flooding the entire room with light. So you get something else, cover it up, crawl back into bed. It's perfectly pitch black. You slip into a dreamy sleep. Except for the smoke detector. Okay, you shouldn't mess with the smoke detector. can't reach it anyway. So you just go to sleep. But talk about light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it, right? Well, after describing Jesus as the word, John goes on to describe him as light. Verses four through five say, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light. And so what's the significance of light? Well, a few things. Light, first of all, reveals the truth. And as I was saying in the previous point, because God is transcendent, he must reveal himself to us in order, us, in order for us to know him or even know about him. And so you can see the relationship between the word and the light here. One way that God has revealed himself is through his word, scripture. God's word is like a light shining into the darkness, revealing what we could not see. And Jesus is the light that reveals truth. That's who he is. That's part of his ministry. John fourteen six, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And so that's what Jesus is about. Jesus is about truth. Jesus is about light, revealing the transcendent to the world, revealing who God is to the world. Light reveals truth, and Jesus is the light. Second, light overcomes darkness. Verse 5 again, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light overcomes darkness. And that's our hope, right? Is there any sweeter truth than that in the end? Truth overcomes lies. Good overcomes evil. Love overcomes hate. That's reality, and that's our hope, that light overcomes darkness. But not for lack of trying by darkness, right? Darkness sure has tried to overcome light. I know it's Christmas time, but at Easter, we all know the story. That darkness seemed to have gotten within an inch of overcoming light. Evil men sentenced Jesus to death upon the testimony of lies. And then he really died and stayed dead for three days until what happened? He rose from the dead. Truth overcame lies. Good overcame evil. Light overcame darkness. That is our hope. The darkness does not overcome the light. And this connects to the last aspect of light. Light is life, eternal life. Verse 4 again, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of man. 
If you remember the parable of the talents from the Gospels, when the master judges the servant who did nothing with his talents, do you remember what he says to him? It's Matthew 25, 30. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell, it's dark there. It's the outer darkness. It's the eternal darkness, full of evil and lies. But because Jesus rose from the dead, nobody has to be cast out into that outer darkness. Instead, eternal light is available. Eternal life is available to all who place their faith in the light, in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have strong faith or weak faith. It doesn't matter if you can only see the faintest glimmer of light. A mustard seed's worth of faith is enough for life to overcome death for you, for Jesus to be your light of eternal life. And so how ought we live in light of Jesus's light, in light of the fact that Jesus is the light, in light of his ministry of shining light. How ought we live? Well, for one, we ought to love the light. We ought to love what light reveals. And what does light reveal? It reveals God himself. So we ought to love God. And we ought to love God's truth. The light reveals God's word, how God created the world, what's wrong with it now, how God plans to redeem it, what it will be like one day in the new creation. You know, there can be this way of apologizing for what God has revealed. Christianity says a lot of things about reality that are at odds with our preferences, and so we might find ourselves apologizing for what God has said about money or what he said about sexuality or what he's said about sovereignty, or what he said about hell, or what he said about power, or whatever. Yeah, I know, it stinks, but this is what God says. But if what God says is truth, and his light reveals that truth, and his light is life, then we ought to love the light. We ought to love the truth. And if we find ourselves not loving it, we need to pray. God, I'm having a hard time with this thing that you've said Help me to learn to love it, because I don't right now. So that's the first thing. We ought to love the light and what it reveals. Second, we ought to align ourselves with Jesus' ministry to reveal truth. And there's all sorts of applications of this. Uh, Teaching others what the Bible teaches through catechesis or discipleship. Uh, Maybe sharing the good news of the gospel through evangelism. Those were likely obvious to you. But there are even ways to align ourselves with the light through our normal daily lives or even our jobs and vocations. So, for example, when when a detective investigates a crime and his work uncovers some evidence that helps bring a criminal to justice, that's totally consistent with Jesus's ministry of light. Or when a doctor scans a patient and discovers a tumor. That's just like Jesus's shining light. The tumor was hidden in darkness, but now a light has shined on it, and we can deal with it. You see, there's all sorts of common grace ways that we can participate in Jesus's ministry of revealing truth, of reflecting his image in us, of reflecting his light. 
or you know, students, if you're in school and you learn something true that you didn't know before, you're participating in Jesus' light. All truth is God's truth, after all. But then on the flip side, we also should not cover things in darkness. You know, just this past week, it came out that a church in our denomination is strongly suspected by their state government of retaliation against one of its employees. The employee raised a concern with the leadership and then was fired shortly thereafter. And in the process of the firing, a severance package was offered to the employee upon the condition of signing an NDA. And stuff like this just makes me so angry because it's completely inconsistent with the reality that Jesus is the light. The light that reveals truth in darkness. It's completely inconsistent with that reality for an elder or a pastor to be in the business of non-disclosure agreements with their sheep. I mean, churches and Christians should not be hiding things in darkness through NDAs. They should be revealing things to the light, bringing truth out into the open. Because we of all people should not fear when our mess-ups or our failures or our shortcomings or even our sins are brought to light. If you confess your sins, if you bring your sin into the light, if you confess and repent, what does God say? He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And so you don't have to fear. You don't have to hide. Christians of all people are free to bring even their ugliest sins into the light. Jesus became a human and died so that you could. And that brings us to our final point, flesh. There was a a song uh, from the 90s by Joan Osborne called One of Us. If you guys heard this song, some of the lyrics go like this. If God had a name, would you call it to his face? If God had a face, what would it look like? What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. What if God was one of us? I don't know the songwriter's rhetorical intent or theological perspective in asking that question, but when I hear the question, what if God was one of us, I can't help but think he is. He became one of us. Jesus became one of us. The last verse in our passage, verse 14, says just that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation, the greatest miracle of all, the transcendent word and eternal light became a baby, a human, one of us. And he dwelled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt uh, is actually literally tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And you know where the word tabernacle comes from? It comes from all the way back in Exodus. As the Israelites are being led from Egypt toward the promised land, God has them build a mobile dwelling place for him so that he can always be with them as they go. Tabernacle was sort of the first God with us, Emmanuel. Or it might be better to say it was the first restoration of God with us, Emmanuel, because you could actually trace God with us even further back. It actually all starts in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked around with them there. But of course, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And for a while, 
there was no clear God with us among humans. He would sort of appear from time to time to specific people, but he didn't have a consistent place among them. Somewhere you could go and know for sure that he was always with you in a special covenantal way until the tabernacle in Exodus with Moses and the people who were led out of Egypt. And then later, once the nation of Israel had been established as a a nation in the promised land, that's when they built a a more permanent dwelling place for God in Jerusalem, the temple, a more permanent place for God with us, Emmanuel. Kind of. The temple actually turns out to not be that tournament because that permanent because it gets destroyed by the Babylonians when they destroy the whole city of Jerusalem and carry the Israelites off into exile. <clears throat> About a century later, though, uh, eventually the people make their way back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. But when they rebuild the temple in the book of Ezra, God's dwelling presence doesn't return to it. And so there isn't a clear God with us, Emmanuel, for centuries until John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The dwelling place of God, his very presence in a teeny tiny baby. The transcendent became imminent. The abstract became concrete. The all-powerful God of the universe became a poopy, breastfeeding newborn so that he could be God with us, Emmanuel, in the most permanent way. He actually became one of us. That's how close to us he wanted to get. He took on flesh so that he could dwell among us, so that he could dwell with you. The word became flesh to dwell among us. Now, we could reflect on the significance of the word becoming flesh, the incarnation, for the rest of eternity. But for now, I want to emphasize just a few aspects of Jesus taking on flesh. First, because Jesus is the Word and the Word took on flesh, it means that Jesus is the Word of God perfectly applied. Scripture, God's Word, is filled with truths to believe, emotions to feel, actions to take. And it can sometimes be confusing how it all ought to work out. Life is complicated. This fallen world is confusing. A a lot of situations can feel like a labyrinth. You know, what are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? Go to Jesus, because the word of God in the flesh, Jesus is the perfect application of God's word. When you're overwhelmed by the complexity of a situation in your life, look to Jesus. When you're looking at a complicated circumstance and trying to figure out How do I be forgiving yet just? How do I be pure yet missional? How do I be gentle yet wise? Look to Jesus. You know, just like our speaking clarifies our thoughts, just like our actions clarify our speaking, Jesus clarifies God's word applied. He's the word in the flesh. He's everything it teaches and says in action. He's the word embodied. Jesus cried. Jesus got angry. Jesus got sad. Jesus loved. Jesus celebrated. Jesus knew how to be gentle. Jesus knew when to be firm. He flipped tables. Jesus let little children sit in his lap. He prayed. He taught. He rested. He took naps. 
Jesus took on flesh so that he could show us just how wide-ranging the perfect application of God's word is. Second, the word became flesh to love perfectly. Not just some vague sense of love as an emotion, but love as an active invasion into people's lives. Jesus had ears, so he could hear people crying out to him. He, he has a body, so that a woman who's been bleeding for years can touch him and be healed. He has a mouth, so that he can invite those who labor and are heavy laden to come to him and receive some rest. He has a stomach, so that he can eat fish for breakfast with his disciples. He has saliva, so that he can spit on the ground and make mud. He has fingers, so he can wipe that mud on blind eyes and make them new again. The word became flesh that he could embody love. And lastly, the word became flesh so that he could die, so that he could atone for sins. Listen to this quote from the pastor, John Piper. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go. He needed cheeks so that Judas would have somewhere to kiss and so that the soldiers had somewhere to spit. He needed a brain and a spinal column so that the pain could be fully felt for you. As the Advent hymn puts it, the one whose glories knew no end came to earth to taste our sadness, to taste our pain, to taste our suffering. God knows there is a lot of sadness in this life. Literally, he knows. Jesus has tasted it all and then some. But because he came, because he dwelt with us, because he tasted it, sadness doesn't get the final word anymore. Joy does. Light overcomes darkness and joy overcomes sadness. He took on flesh to suffer and die for you, to atone for you, to forgive you because it was the only way to be with you for eternity. Without taking on flesh, he'd be without you forever. But because the word became flesh, he is God with us, Emmanuel, forever. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became a man. The transcendent light became flesh. Jesus became one of us. He became a little vulnerable baby all so that he could dwell with us forever. God with us, Emmanuel. That's our hope. God will be with us forever, and therefore joy will overcome sadness. Joy overcomes sadness for anyone who even with just a mustard seed's worth of faith can say, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. Be born in us today. Are those words true for you? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. 
cast out our sins and enter in. Be born in us today. Let that be your song as Advent becomes Christmas. Jesus came once and he will come again. Joy overcomes sadness. Light overcomes darkness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for coming in the flesh, for being born as a vulnerable baby, for growing into a man who would bear our sins and take them to the cross. Father, we confess all the ways we struggle to believe that. We struggle to live in light of that truth. Forgive us for, for those things, and thank you, God, for your grace and mercy to do so. Give us hope, Lord, going forward to see that ultimately joy will overcome our sadness, that ultimately light will overcome darkness. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.